This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's, fa- it's fascinating to me how easily someone in one religion can find the fallacies and biases in another religion. I think that what's fascinating... I mean, your razor are sharp on your, your, your criticism of Islam here. Yeah, and but what I find fascinating, Jeff, is that you recognize that with other religions, but you don't do it with your own. Cause I, that, may I, be, that may be the case. <laughs> I'm just saying. And, and there's that confirmation bias coming up again. One, two, three... Welcome to Apologetics Live. We're here to answer your questions and challenges about God and the Bible. Meet your hosts from Striving for Eternity Ministries, Andrew Rappaport, Dr. Anthony Silvestro, and Pastor Justin Pierce. Well, we are live, Apologetics Live, here to answer your theological questions, any question you have about God and the Bible. We argue that we can answer them. You don't believe that? Well, Come on in and join us. Give us those challenges. We're going to have a special show tonight. We got a very excited guest. Let me bring in my co-host here, Mr. Justin Pierce. How are you, sir? All right. You're doing good. Uh, Stressed and blessed. Stressed and blessed. Stressed and blessed. That's what school is. Yes. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly what it is. Stressed and blessed. So we have have another co-host with us. And... uh, uh, it always gets confusing with you two, but it, there, there he is, Mr. Justin Peters. How are you, sir? Yeah, that's my twin. Hey, brothers, doing all right, doing well. How about y'all? Good, doing great. See, this is what I've happened. been missing you, brother. I haven't got to see you in a while. It's been like every time you try to get on, I can't get on. When I'm, when when you're on, I can't get on, or you know, vice versa. And I just like, I'm glad to see my brother. I, I really am. So. <laughs> oh, thanks, Justin. Yeah. Good to see you too, brother. Serious. Well, real quick, before we get bring in our, our guest, Dr. Jason Lyle, uh, Justin, I know you got an event coming up in Ohio, I believe next weekend, correct? Yeah, that that's right. Justin Peters. <laughs> Justin Peters. Uh, you're going to be down, I, I believe, at Dr. Silvestro's church, correct? Correct. So uh-huh. uh, that is Olms Falls, uh, Olmstead Falls. Falls Baptist Church. Uh, in uh, Olmstead Falls, Ohio. So if any of you are out that way and want to hear Justin Peters, go check that out. Uh, that is going to be n- next weekend. So if you're not sure what that is, that turns out to be the 10th and the 11th. Uh, and you're, you're going to be, you're doing uh, your seminar, a seminar? No, I think you're, you're doing half a seminar, right? Yeah, kind of half a seminar. Yeah. yeah. Elements of my seminar. Okay. So, yeah. And then preaching on Sunday? Yep. Okay. And, that's uh, the rumor. That's the rumor. <laughs> anything else? I think that's the the only thing you got coming up until G three, right? Yeah. Uh, you mm-hmm. and I will both be right after G three. You and I are both headed out to uh, the pastors' conference at the Creation Museum, where you'll be speaking. So, yeah. if folks yeah. want to come see us there, <clears throat> encourage you guys to check that out. If you're anywhere in that area, pastors especially. Um, chance to get to hear justin and and uh some, i'm trying to remember now i'm drawing a complete blank on who else is speaking oh that's so bad of me uh <laughs> it's, it's, technically it's at the ark 
It's the Ark Encounter. Oh, is it at the Ark? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's at the Ark in um, Conrad and Bayway. That's right. HB H. Charles and some others, but those are the only names that are, I can remember. So. You're, you're the headliner, right? <laughs> no, no. I'm the B team. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to bring in Dr. Jason Lyle. How you doing, sir? Good. Very good. Good. We've had a lot of people are interested when it, we said you were having you on. A lot. It, I will see if people actually come in. I don't know why, but everyone was like, "Oh, I'll have questions." Maybe you bring that out in people, but um, yeah, they will. I, I I think when I did the I toasted put this as we're going to talk flat earth and i think someone thinks that you're going to be arguing for flat earth which tells me oh. they didn't really know who you were <laughs> i was like okay maybe before you accuse someone of making christianity look ridiculous you should know who they are and what they're actually going to say just just a thought <laughs> uh but but i i i love i always love telling this story jason because it is my favorite evangelism story uh and so, folks, just picture this scene. Here we are. We're, we're on the boardwalk in Jer- the Jersey Shore. Pe- uh, we had, I don't know, may- maybe 70, 80 people out there evangelizing. There's this one pastor, and he is talking to this military guy for a while. I mean, like, we had a code. If, if I told people, if I come up and say TW, it means time waster. It's someone that's wasting your time. Move on. Well, we go and, and realize that, you know, I see this guy, he's talking in 40 minutes. I say, TW. He's like, no, no, it's good. Okay, 40 minutes later, hey, TW. You know, he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Another 20 minutes I come by, I'm like, okay, let me get in on this conversation and see what it is you're 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 talking about. And the, the guy just turns and he's like, well, there's no intelligent Christian. So I'm asking him, like, how do you define an intelligent Christian? And he, you know, each of the things he's trying to define it as, I'm able to easily knock down. And then he goes, well, you show me one intelligent Christian that ha- you know that has a PhD. That would be an intelligent Christian. I said a PhD. What if what if he had a dual PhD in astrophysics, like a you know astronomy and physics? Like a, with that with that impression, he's like no such person exists. Now what he didn't know is I had a shot. I could see there's Jason just sitting on a bench, and I said Jason, can you come over here for a second. Jason just walks up, comes over, and I said meet Doctor Jason Lyle dual ph you know astrophysicist and and jason puts his hand out says hello and the guy just turns and walked away (laughs) and that was the end of that (laughs) so proving the point that this gentleman really didn't want he was a time waster he didn't want to learn anything (laughs) And, and to the pastor he probably sounded really intelligent but he didn't even get jason didn't even get to give a single argument (laughs) So I don't know if we should put Jason on the spot, though, Pastor Justin. You have your your logical fallacies that we usually go through on your wall there. Should, should we pick an easy one for him to? We usually pick one, and, yeah, and we really usually have one. to define it and give an example. But you you do have a book out for children to teach them logic for yeah. homeschoolers. So yep. you know, now I said easy one. Don't look for the hard one. I've got an easy one. Non sequitur. Go ahead. Oh, that's kind of a generic term for anything that doesn't follow. That's it. Just means it doesn't follow. So whatever your conclusion is, it doesn't follow from your premise. That's kind of a catch-all. Could you yeah. give an example of one on the spot? Um, well, uh, you know, the, the sky. You know, the sky is blue and grass is green. Therefore, the Earth is flat. <laughs> See, not only does he answer that, Justin, but he makes a perfect segue into the topic tonight. 
<laughs> and that's what I was thinking. You know, I was like, I, I wonder if he's going to put it into, you know, uh, bring it towards the discussion. Now I have to ask a serious question as we're getting started. Um, it's, it's one that's, that actually has me confused. Um, do people actually believe this, the, the flatter thing, or are they just making this up? Cause I mean, I've heard this. I, I honestly can't imagine that somebody actually believes this. I, and, and I'm not trying to be, you know, mean, uh, and I know that may sound mean, but I just, I don't understand why somebody would reason through it. I haven't done the research to study it. Um, I may actually do that because that is intriguing to me as to why, somebody would believe that so i think you get a mix um i think the the folks who are really pushing it i think they know better and especially the ones that that have promoted it recently i think the um there's evidence that some of them were attempting to make christianity look foolish by pointing out verses that they can misinterpret to somehow teach a flatter i mean there's nothing in the bible that says the earth's flat but there are certain verses you can pull out of context and um and, and some of them were trying to do that to make Christianity look silly. And then some Christians, I think, bought into it and thought maybe because they don't know how to interpret the Bible either. And so they thought, well, maybe there's something to that. Maybe it really is flat. But I, th- I think that some people are genuinely convinced that it's flat. Well, I, yeah. I know some are because we had one before I left my, my last church, uh, you know, t- to move out here. We had several, uh, actually all three of the pastors um, asked me if I would speak to one individual, and because the one individual, they said he was starting to get into it, and I re- realized very quickly after talking to him, he wasn't starting to get into it. He was full on flat Earth. He he even bought a watch that would tell him how the where the sun was over the the flat disc. Um, <clears throat> he had an app that had all. I mean, he was putting money up for this, and and I'll, I'll start by saying this because of you know. Jason, we, we're sitting, uh, Jason, you were speaking up at Jim Osmond's church up there where, mm-hmm. where Justin is at, and he, we were all at, at lunch, and you said something that I, have, I ended up using. You said there's an easy way to test if the earth is a sphere, and all you got to do is go watch a sunrise, stand up, watch the sunrise, and then fall down to the ground as soon as it comes over the water, and you'll watch it again, and it can only do that mm-hmm. if it's a sphere. And so we we weren't living close to the ocean there, so that's exactly what I told them to do. And uh, I said, an easy way to test. We we went through some of the things I'm sure you'll go over, but that one simple thing has been helpful for people to just be like, you can test this. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, go look on your app that has the, 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 the sun somehow going like this, because it kind of goes, it, it, it goes in and out around, is how his app showed it. That wouldn't happen. You wouldn't see it twice. And, I, and as soon as you said it, it dawned on me because I remember I was in Florida and I was trying to get a, a picture of the sunset. And just as I was getting it, clouds moved in. And I missed it, you know, and it's like, OK, I'll just drop down and get it again. <laughs> you know, the advantage of that curvature. But uh, for folks who may this may be the first time hearing it, uh, I know. There, there are people that think it's like people can't really believe this. But first, one of the first times I heard someone actually arguing for it, I, you know, I actually thought it was a joke. Um, you know, when someone we on this show, first time someone came in on, on a show, Matt and I did, uh, I, I actually was, I jokingly said, watch, it's probably some like atheist that just wants to prove Christians are gullible. And then I found out that the, the founder of the Flat Earth Society is an agnostic. 
And they actually, I don't, I don't know if I ever told you, they actually invited me to speak. I, yeah, I don't know how I got the invitation, but I got an email inviting me to speak at a, at a flat earth, you know, society uh, convention. And I, they, and I said, okay, my, my topic would be why the Bible has to be a sphere. <laughs> and somehow I, I never heard back from them. <laughs> I mean, if they let me do it, I wasn't going to be dishonest, go there and then, you know, but, but I, I remember I was on the boardwalk at, in, in Jersey is the first time I heard about flat earth. And I'm sitting there, and I was with, and you know how we do things at the at our conferences that we used to do at Jersey. I had an older gentleman with me who I hadn't known before, never met him, but we're evangelizing. And I'm supposed to kind of teach him how to evangelize. I'm talking to this guy, and I'm like, great. Like, here I am. I got to talk about, the, I want to teach this guy how to share the gospel, and we're talking flat earth. And I'm going like, like what? You re- like, you really believe the earth is flat? Like, I thought he was just joking, because you get strange people that make things up. I thought he was just making it up. This guy was totally, he's flat earth. And, and we're talking for like 30 minutes. And, and I go, and I asked him, I'm like, you know, at one point I'm asking him, like, what do you, you know, how do you explain like all the satellites we have in, in space and all that? And he's giving all these answers. And after about like 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes, the older gentleman next to me just looks at this young man and says, well, I don't believe you. And he's like, oh, really? Why not? He goes, because I've been in space. And it was just like the mic drop moment. <laughs> and, and it was like, okay, like, why didn't you jump in about 20 minutes ago? <laughs> but this is something that, you know, people laugh at. They criticize Christians of believing in a flat earth back many years ago um, when they thought the earth was flat and not a sphere. And they accuse Christians of believing that. And now it seems that Christians are what is the whole phenomenon with flat earth and i should i should actually ask all, before that introduce yourself if because i should put up your website so folks can can know um that you because you used to be you used to be with a couple of big name organizations uh, mm-hmm. answers in genesis um mm-hmm. you if anyone has gone to the uh creation museum and sat in the planetarium you put that planetarium show together Created yep. Cosmos. Yep. Um, you then went over to uh, wasn't it, was it I ICR, ICR right? for a little while. Yeah, you went to ICR. Now you're with the Biblical Science Institute. So explain that a little bit, and then explain this whole phenomenon with flat Earth. <laughs> okay. Well, the Biblical Science Institute. We do a lot of the things that are done by our sister ministry, Answers in Genesis. Uh, we slightly different approach. Just. We want to hit all kinds of different people. Yeah, I have a real heart for students, especially like college level students who want to maybe a little go a little deeper uh, into some of this information. And so I, I try to get that out there. And what we do at the Biblical Science Institute, we just defend the Christian faith, particularly in matters of origins. But I want to branch out a little bit too. And so in, in other areas of science, when when people come up and say no, the Bible can't be trusted because of this scientific alleged fact and then i'll come in and say well let's take a look at this and of course every time if you really understand the evidence it confirms what the bible teaches and of course it's necessary as one aspect of that to understand what the bible's teaching you have to know a little bit about exegesis hermeneutics how to read the bible so that you don't come away you know with or when people make claims that well the bible teaches a flat earth you can say, no, nah, it really doesn't. Let, let's take a look at some of the passages you're looking at and take a look at the assumptions you've imported. 
Uh, yeah, lately I've been dealing with the uh, with the flat earthers. I actually had a series of articles. They're now complete. I have a series of three articles uh, responding to some specific claims of a, of a particular flat earth advocate. He was very gracious. I, uh, I like the guy, uh, but uh, his claims don't stand up to scrutiny. And so what I did is I did a systematic <laughs> refutation of those claims and showed that if you're you know if you're open to it, you can test the shape of your of the earth with your own. Uh, senses. You can do that. And I've, I'd written another article previously showing some experiments you can do to test the shape of the earth, including the uh, the sunrise or sunset uh, experiment you just mentioned. I learned about that when I was an undergraduate physicist. We had to calculate the uh, time difference when you're standing up to when you're lying down. And it's it, I think it's about seven seconds hmm. difference. And from that, you can actually not only know the earth's spherical, you can calculate its size. So uh, that, so that's pretty neat. But even when I was back in high school, I remember we took a family vacation uh, to Colorado Springs, where I'm now living. That's one of the reasons I, I wanted to live here, is I fell in love with it at that time. And I remember um, calculating about the distance where we should be able to see the tops of the Rocky Mountains based on the curvature of the Earth, and being very satisfied when indeed they came into view at that distance. Uh, on a flat Earth, they would be theoretically visible at all distances, because it's it's flat. There's no curvature. So uh, I've known about the round Earth for quite some time. This this movement is the the resurgence of, of flat Earthism. It, it's quite recent, actually. Even I think even when I was working with Answers in Genesis, it was almost unheard of at that time. So there's been a recent uh, surging of that. Uh, I can guarantee you that people who who believe that have learned about it on the internet. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that because it's not like you can find peer reviewed scientific literature defending a flat earth you can't it's very easy to refute if you know anything about geometry trigonometry and observations uh, you can you can easily demonstrate the world's round anybody can do it if you live near an ocean or a mountain it's really easy and even if you don't there are other ways to do it using the positions of the stars and so on and this is something that educated people have known since ancient times um, since at least around 500 bc that's when pythagoras thought that maybe the Earth really is round. The Bible was teaching that far earlier in Job uh, 26, verses 7 and 10. The Bible indicates an earth that hangs in space and has a boundary between the light and darkness that is a circle that only works on a sphere. So, uh, But then the Greeks came to accept that, and by 300 BC, educa- educated people knew the world was round. At the time of Christ's earthly ministry, educated people knew the world was round. So we've known that for a long time. And there's many different ways you can demonstrate it. So the the flat Earth movement indicates a just an extreme lack of discernment, and that's something I'm seeing not just there, but in other aspects as well. And it's uh, it's sad to me that there are Christians who are buying into this because that that really is pretty silly. Uh, it indicates that they're not reading the scriptures right if they think the scriptures support that idea, and it indicates they really don't know anything about science if if they're thinking that there's somehow scientific evidence for flat Earth because there, there just isn't. There just isn't. So it's a lack of discernment. It's conspiratorial thinking. And um, the, the fact that there's all kinds of ridiculous nonsense going on today uh, makes it a little harder for me to defend the fact that, you know, you, you shouldn't jump on every conspiracy theory that <laughs> that's out there. The fact that you do have some misinformation out there doesn't mean that all of information is misinformation. So we really need to be more discerning. Uh, but it is a it's a lack of discernment. And I think one thing that fuels it, too, is a, a lot of people have realized, especially you know Christians, we, we point out that not everything you're taught in school is true. And, that, and that's that's right. You should be skeptical 
especially if you're in a public school that's giving you a secular perspective on things. I think some people think, well, the schools lied to us about evolution. Maybe they lied to us about other stuff. And I don't, that's not a bad attitude to have, but you shouldn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't mean everything you learned in public school was false because there certain mathematical truths, for example, uh, the nature of the earth, that's something that's scientifically testable today. So I would just encourage people to be a bit more discerning in the information they hear. And uh, in a case of the, the shape of the earth, that's something you can test. So it's inexcusable to believe in a flat earth these days. It's something you can test. Yeah, it's strange that you'd say like math is is like an absolute because you obviously haven't watched the recent video of the the high school professor or high school teacher who said we don't need to know math. We have to understand about you know Antifa and Black Lives Matter because that's <laughs> real. That's real truth and math. You know they want to redo math. Okay, but. You know, let's look at some of the arguments they make. They will try to make biblical arguments saying, but look, the Bible refers to four corners of the earth. It, you know, so isn't that proof that the earth is flat because you can only have four corners on a flat surface? You know, the interesting thing about that, I haven't heard anyone make that argument in a very long time because it's also inconsistent with their <laughs> idea for the shape of the earth because most modern flat earth advocates um, – take the shape of the earth to be a like a um a, a short like a cylinder or a circle a flat disc with no corners so they can't use that they can't use that verse and so i think even most flat earth advocates would say no that's that's referring to the four cardinal directions of course that's referring to the four cardinal directions at the time uh, revelation includes that language but but at the time that's written people already knew again educated people knew the world was round at that time but that was a convenient way to refer to the you know, north south east and west so that's a non-starter it's not compatible with the modern flat flat disc earth view which doesn't have corners yeah, I know some of the other arguments that they, they often give. I mean, they, they, they usually have a lot of different – one of the things, though, that they that is very convincing for many, and you'll see us on YouTube, and it looks convincing. If, if you go early morning out on the, on the water, you can actually see further than you're supposed to be able to see if the earth is curved. How do we explain things like that? Yeah, that's caused by a temperature inversion. In fact, in the, 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 I think it's the last article that I wrote on this topic, I went through the physics of that and showed how light uh, bends. We, we know that light bends uh, as, as it goes through a medium where its speed in that medium changes. And you can see that in water. You've, maybe you've seen a beam of wood put in water at an angle, and it looks like the wood bends when it goes under the water because the way the light refracts, because the speed of the speed of light in water is only about 75% what it is in air, so that causes the light to bend. And you can calculate that based on, on first physics principles. And so I just did some back-of-the-envelope calculations. I couldn't initially find anything uh, on um, how to calculate light curvature in air. And so I, I thought, well, I can, I can figure this out. This is kind of basic physics. And I, I do have a degree in this. I should probably put it to use. <laughs> so I ended up doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations and calculated the amount by which light would curve. And it doesn't take a very strong temperature inversion to do it. Basically, all you need to get light to curve the same way the Earth does is you need the temperature to increase with altitude instead of decrease. Normally, the temperature decreases with altitude because eventually in space, the, the temperature is like close to absolute zero. So normally, the temperature decreases. And I, I know that when I go up to Pike's Peak, I know it's going to be 20 to 30 degrees cooler than it is down here uh, in the town of Colorado Springs. 
So that's normally the way it works. But every now and then you'll get what's called a temperature inversion, where for a where for some distance the the temperature will increase. And in, if you're in a city, a lot of times you'll see smog on that day because it prevents it prevents uh, convection and such. So it can it's it's an inversion layer. And I, I figured out um, just from some basic math that uh, if you have so much as a, a temperature inversion where you get like. 0.1 degrees per, well, I forget, I forget the numbers, but it's on the article. And it doesn't take a very strong temperature inversion for light to curve about five inches every mile. And now the curvature of the Earth is such that it, the Earth drops eight inches per mile. So you're almost keeping up with the Earth there. And uh, so you can actually see a bit further. It, it What it causes is a distortion. It looks like the Earth, it makes the Earth look bigger than it would be otherwise. And you can very nearly double the distance at which you can see things, and so I, I actually applied that calculation to um, the the Chicago skyline as seen from dunes that are on the other side of the lake. And sure enough, you can get the buildings to come up higher, but only on days when there's a temperature inversion. And when the when the air is normal, when the temperature decreases with uh, altitude, as it does very slightly normally then you don't get that effect. And so, and by the way, even when that effect kicks in, you still can't see forever. It's, it just makes the, it just makes the earth look seem a little bigger than it would be, but it's still round. And so you can't see an infinite distance. So it, it still confirms around earth. It's just, people don't know much about physics. They don't realize yet you can get light to move, not quite in a straight line. Uh, if the air changes temperature. And, and that's one of the things if, if for folks, if you ever hear someone bring that argument up, just know that it's only at certain times of the year in certain places that that can happen. Now, they, yes, they, there's an explanation for that. But the thing is, is that so many people will use this. And, and that is, I think, in the people I've spoken to, the most convincing argument to many. And yet there's a very good rational explanation for it. And the thing I've always told people to do is, hey, how about you do that in the middle of the day? Do the same experiment in the middle of the day, and it'll never work because mm. you don't have that, right? So this yeah, is when, when, the, when the, yeah, you double check to make sure the temperature is not inverted. But yeah, because you, you can get it to persist. But you're you're right; it's more likely in the in the early morning, for example. But uh, yeah, if you don't have the temperature inversion, it will not do that. It yeah, will not do that. And Ron Jason. Ron Hughes is saying here that hap, you know here in Tampa, with the inversion <laughs> over the water is very common, and that's why they go to certain places for that. Yeah. Justin, I was going to say, Jason, have you seen the documentary Behind the Curve? Have any of you uh, seen that? I have not. I have not seen it. No. If, seen if it. people are interested, it's actually quite fascinating. You can rent it or buy it on YouTube, but it's a documentary entitled Behind the Curve, and it's a this documentary team goes and they follow around some of the more prominent flat earthers, and they go into their convention and all that. It's a it, it, it's it's a maddening yet fascinating look inside their mindset mm. and uh so it's 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 very interesting but uh it, what's comical about it though is that they actually end up debunking with their own experiments they end up debunking their own position and they mm. don't know what to do with it but it's uh it is a fascinating if you want to get into the kind of like the psychology of why they think what they think it's, it's pretty interesting behind the curve do they fly in airplanes all around the world that's kind of a question. The military rings yes. Antarctica, which, you know, rings the uh, giant manhole cover that we all live on. And, and they won't let you get up to the edge. So that's 
Yeah, well, and that's the, the there's answers they give, um, and that's why it was so funny that first time I dealt with it because they the guy was saying that nothing, there are no nothing, there are no satellites, there aren't. It's all it's all conspiracy theory. Um, that you know, answers well, in Genesis does have a lot of good resources as well. Um, yeah. I should have pulled it out the the, the book. Um, well, Danny Faulkner wrote that's a book who called it Falling is. Flat. Falling yeah. Flat. I, we actually stock it at the Biblical Science Institute because the, I, it's it's a very well written book. And if you're a rational person and you want to test the shape of the Earth, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you cannot convince someone who is not willing to be rational. Someone who is you know I'm just I'm going to believe in a flat Earth and, I, and because you can always come up with a rescuing device. There's always a rescuing device. But the fact is. Flat earthers do not have a consistent model whereby they can explain the positions of satellites. See, I can predict when the International Space Station is going to go overhead because I know a little bit about physics and I understand its orbit. So I can do that. Flat earthers can't do that. Now, they can look it up on a website that was produced by a round earth believer that has calculated that. But in terms of calculating it based on their model, can't be done. Can't be done because it's not it's not consistent with observations or calculating sunrise and sunsets and and the times of the seasons. Yes, I've seen the the little model they have with the sun that's that sort of is like a spotlight over the Earth. Yeah, that will not work because that would in order to be consistent with seasons, the that that um, uh, beam of light would have to cover only one fourth the surface of the Earth. In which case, on a given day, you should have six hours of sunlight throughout the year instead of twelve. You can test that for yourself. Throughout the course of the year, you have to go complete year. What is the average number of hours of sunlight? And it, it turns out to be 12, not 6. So, I mean, you can you can test these things for yourself, but most people would say, well, then there's a rescuing device to explain that away. But they can't make positive predictions. They can't land people on the moon. They can't put satellites up in space. They can't, you know, they can't do any of those things because they don't have a working model. They have something that looks good to the uninitiated, but it doesn't really work. Okay, so you just use the, hold hold on use the term oh, that I want you to explain. It's a term that I've you know that I know you you use a lot, but for folks who may be new, this is an apologetics live. We teach how to do apologetics. You mentioned a rescuing device. Define a, what that is, and please give an example. A rescuing device is a hypothesis that is designed to protect your belief from what appears to be evidence to the contrary. So, for example, my my um, comets can't last millions of years. Everybody knows that. The rate at which the material is being depleted away from a comet, they evaporate in a time scale of like 100,000 years. So that would seem to be evidence that the solar system is much younger than the 4.5 billion years. And so my secular colleagues have come up with a rescuing device they call the Oort cloud, which is supposedly a comet generator that makes new comets to replenish the old ones. Now, uh, a good rescuing device, uh, an effective one, is one that can't be disproved. And in case of the Oort cloud, we don't have the technology to detect objects at that distance. So there's no way to know that it's there or to disprove it. That makes it a good rescuing device because you can't prove it or disprove it. But um, rational people understand we should try to minimize our rescuing devices. Everybody has them because we all have we all have a worldview that's incomplete. We don't have all the data. We're trying to make sense of that. But uh, we need to try to minimize rescuing devices because they are ultimately arbitrary and uh, therefore irrational in terms of uh, trying to defend your worldview that way. You know, it's funny. We have a regular uh, person who comes in here once in a while. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to come in t- tonight, David. He's he's on his way it to. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah, he's on his way to high, to college. But uh, he he told us he could prove that there, you know, or clouds exist. You know, and he would he would explain that to you. So, yeah, 
we invited him in. Uh, I will well, say, well, and that's what I was going to ask about is the you know the ore clouds on that because it's, I mean, you're dealing with an unfalsifiable, you know, uh, an unfalsifiable claim rescuing device, but the only problem is is it's also unprovable and undetectable, yeah. and so for when you're when you're making a claim like that, you have no evidence for it. You have no reasons for it to be in existence other than your own presupposition. Yeah, and and I I think for me that's um, that that's a big problem. Now I wanted to, I wanted to ask a question. Um, in the study I have done in the past five minutes, maybe fifteen minutes, um, I've looked at uh, some Buddhist and some Hindu uh, uh, works and writings talking about the the Earth being on a disc. And the uh, and and having the different animals holding them up, is it is that where this idea of the flat Earth comes from? Because I mean I can't think of it any other way. Yeah, the early the early Babylonians, the, even the early Greeks before 500 BC uh, taught yeah. a flat Earth. Uh, although with the Greeks, they at least the Greeks believed it floated in space. At least one of the Greek I forget the name, um, but he thought he taught it was a flat disk. But nonetheless, the sun and moon went all the way around it, not. Not like the modern conception, and so that actually that actually works better than the the modern version, but it has its flaws as well. Uh, so yeah, the most ancient most ancient pagan cultures believed in a flat Earth. The Bible was unique in terms of uh, Job. It written you know, we think around two thousand BC, and it talks about the circle that God inscribes on the boundary between light and darkness on the face of the waters, which we would call the uh, the Terminator, and that only works on a sphere. That's not going to work on any other surface where, where you, the Terminator is permanently a um, is, is is the Terminator is permanently a circle. And then, of course, in Job twenty uh, six verse seven, uh, he stretches out the north over the empty over the empty place, hangs the earth on nothing, and so that's a great um, indication that, that that Job at least apparently had some divine insight into this issue because he knew the the correct configuration of the earth. The Bible's not a science textbook, but when it touches on science, it's right. And it does mention the roundness of the earth. And, and in a number of places, too, I would argue the global flood doesn't really make sense without a globe. Uh, water would either run off the sides on a flat earth, or if, if they want to put it in a snow globe, then then the, uh, the dome itself constitutes a hill that is not covered by the waters. You can't really have a global flood without a globe. So... Uh, it, since very ancient times, people who were believers in the living God understood something about the shape of the earth. But up until about 500 BC, almost all pagan cultures thought the earth was flat. Uh, some of them thought it floated in water. Some of them thought it was in space. Some of them thought it was held up by something else, a turtle and, and what have you. So, uh, yeah, so the, the Bible's unique in, in the ancient world. And that's why you have folks who saying, well, no, it can't really mean that because, you know, the Bible's just trying to explain things. They're assuming that it's not inspired and that the Hebrews were just trying to come up with their own version of this. But I'm sorry, that de- that denies inspiration. The fact is God understands the nature of his universe. He made it, and he gives little insights on that nature to his people in the book that he inspired. So the Bible is unique in the ancient world in promoting a round earth at the time when nobody else believed it. Well, the Bible is unique that <laughs> in many ways. Um, let me. I want to go to some questions that have been asked here. I'm going to go way back up, and I, I'll say that uh, encourage Cody to come in. He has several questions, so maybe he'll actually join in. If you want to join us and ask questions uh, of of any of us, um, you just go to apologeticslive.com 
and there is an icon to participate. Just join us on StreamYard. Uh, it works best in Chrome, and you just have to make sure to allow for the use of your mic and camera. But here's a question for you, uh, Jason. Dr. L, I guess your name was too long to type the whole thing out. I'm <laughs> <Double> efficiency. <laughs> Do you think the ratios of semi-stable, long-lived ratio, ra- that radioisotopes in earth rocks and the um, astronomical bodies, the nebulae, uh, are useful in estimating the age of the universe. Now, this was a question I was, gets into a question I wanted to ask you as well, but I was going to ask later. But since this got came up, I'll, I'll, we'll go with this right now. Yeah, I don't think it is, because uh, in order to do any kind of age estimate like that, you'd have to know the initial conditions that were present, and you'd have to know that the rate at which these things decay has always been what it is today. Today, it's pretty close to constant, and, and by constant, I mean it's actually an exponential decay, but the the exponent is constant with time today. But that doesn't mean it's always been that way. There's very good evidence that at least some forms of radioactivity were faster in the past. The Rate Research Project, headed up by a number of uh, PhD creation scientists, uh, came up with very compelling evidence that I I can't think of any other way to explain it other than radioisotope. um, Radioisotopes decayed faster in the past. Now, you could, if you knew the rate at which it, it happened, exactly when it happened, you could compensate for that, but that's very difficult to do. There's still the the problem of the initial conditions. There are ways to try and estimate those initial conditions. Yes, I am familiar with isochron methods, uh, but they have their assumptions too. And sometimes they give uh, age estimates that we know are wrong because they've been tested on a rock of known age. And that's the real that's the real clincher for me. Even if you don't know all the math and know all the physics, the fact is we've tested radiometric dating on rocks of known age, and it often gives wrong answers answers that are incredibly inflated. Uh, rocks from Mount St. Helens have been uh, sent in, brand new rocks, and, and radiometric dating is supposed to tell you when the rock formed, when it hardened, because before that, when it's in a liquid state, the elements can move in and out. So, But then the, it hardens, it locks it in, that starts the clock, and so the radioactive decay products simply get trapped in there, and their source material is depleted. And uh, so, so we took rocks from Mount St. Helens, had them dated in a secular lab so we couldn't be accused of bias. And they came back with ages of hundreds of thousands, millions of years on rocks that we know are, are brand new or you know, less than a few years old at the time they were dated. You can do the same with rocks from Hawaii. You'll get millions of years on rocks that are brand new. You can stick the pole in the magma, pull it out, watch it cool off, send it in the lab. You'll get millions of years very consistently. Wow. So. It, now, sometimes wow. it gives the right answer, but it doesn't consistently give the right answer. And so I don't, that's why that's it's not terribly useful uh, in terms of uh, age, age estimates of anything, really. I was actually going to ask you that, that very question you just answered, because th- there is a confusion on this. Is the magma itself, because it is, you know, several thousand years old uh, or millions of years old, quote unquote, um, it, it, is that magma itself uh, going to be datable? as it's hot or does it when it cools off that's the starting point uh, yeah, when it's the starting point because they're trying to compare what, what happens in a radioactive decay is you have one element that's radioactive and it will decay into another element so over time the parent decreases and the daughter product increases yeah. and that's okay if they're trapped in there then you can estimate both but if they're moving then the parent new parent elements can come in new daughter elements can go out so uh, secularists do not try to date anything liquid uh, or that has been liquid, uh, they, they recognize that the date's supposed to be when the rock hardened. 
Uh, some people get misconceptions of that. They think it's when the atoms formed, in which case uh, all, all everything in the secular view ought to be 13.8 billion years old. Or yeah, there's a difference in age. Yeah. So I, I have a feeling, uh, Jason, I could be wrong, but th- I think this question may not be for you. And I, I don't know, maybe you're not an expert on Mormonism, but <laughs> uh, Ryan Leach asked the question, hey, I witness to Mormons frequently when I bring up the problems with Joseph Smith, the response I gen- that is general... Uh, sorry, the response is generally that the accounts were recorded by others and not Joseph Smith, so it may not be accurate. Thoughts? Um, I, I'm going I'm to assume, as, since I've written two books on Mormonism, that this question's for me. <laughs> um, so the, 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 the answer to that's really easy, Ryan. It's the fact that Joseph Smith's own accounts have a lot of errors within them, and, and that's why even in the Book of Mormon you see a you know, basically a summarization of taking, there's like seven or eight different accounts of how we found the Book of Mormon, different times where different people were there, different places, and they try to bring those all together because they couldn't avoid the fact that he had told these stories so many times to different people that it, they, they had to somehow bring that together. And so, um, you could just look at what his own accounts are. It is interesting because when you really press them on that, one of the big things for them is that the Book of Mormon supposedly was was seen by the witnesses that saw the, the, Joseph Smith do the translation. But if you actually look at what they actually said um, in their accounts, they did not see the book. They saw the translation being done. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of errors. One of the, the funniest things that I think of is uh, the Tanners did a lot of work, and, and two great, a great place to go. Uh, just do a search on Sandra Tanner. She has a ton of material. Her and her husband, who passed away, have a lot of material. Go to MRM. It stands for MormonResearchMinistry.org, MRM.org. Uh, you can get the book that's right over my shoulder there, Sharing the Good News with Mormons. That will give you information. And then the one above it right there is What Do They Believe? Those are available at Driving for attorney, those will help you. But one of the funniest stories Sandra Tanner's husband came up realized was I heard from him was the fact that they had this translation of the Book of Mormon, and uh, one of the guys translating it just wanted to bring it to his wife to convince her because she was believing that. Well, Joseph Smith was a known con man. He was arrested for it, and she thought he still was one and taking her husband's money. So uh, he wanted to prove it to her. He brought the Book of Mormon home to her. And no one knows what happened to it. Now Joseph Smith's in a, in a dilemma. Because if he doesn't translate it exactly the same way, well, she can then pull that out and say, see? And so what he did is he basically said that because of this wicked woman, God wasn't going to give this to anyone anymore. And therefore, uh, it was just going to be a summarized account of what happened. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of errors within Mormonism. All right, next question that we have here, and I know, John, you're backstage. We'll bring you in a bit, but I want to get these questions before they roll off. So uh, Heidi has sent a question. Have you gentlemen seen any connection between the increase of flat earth and seven-day Adventism and Hebrew roots movement? I've seen there is different deceptions kind of weave and interweave so just wondering if you've seen that one of the deceptions lead into another. Hmm. I don't know if... I haven't really... Um, I, I think 
all of them in, in some sense indicate a, a lack of discernment and that's on the rise but I haven't seen one directly lead into the other maybe you guys can comment on that well I guess well, Jason go, uh, Justin go ahead looks like you were going to say something I don't know that there's a direct from what I can see a, a direct connection between flat earth and seventh day Adventism and Hebrew roots both of those obviously are problematic in their own right I don't know that there's a direct connection between them um Phil Johnson did an excellent series of lectures on Seventh-day Adventism, oh gosh, eight or nine months ago, something like that. You can find it on YouTube, but it's it's really, really good. A lot of information. He did a really good job refuting it, but I'm, I'm not aware of a direct connection. Yeah, and, and I guess what I would say with this is, you know, we have to understand how someone gets into Flat Earth, Flat Earthism, uh, Hebrew Roots, uh, any of these sort of things. If you understand the makeup of how someone gets into this, I think that this, it will help you to understand the dynamics. Let me give Flat Earth as the example, since that's what we're talking about tonight. The, the way most people that I know that have been gotten into Flat Earth, and, and Jason, you could you know, correct me if you think there's other ways, but I think the most popular way, and you kind of said, it's, it's from the Internet. People the start internet. watching YouTube. I think what you see with most of these groups, whether it's black Hebrew Israelites, it's Hebrew roots, some of them have some different reasons. You know, with black Hebrew Israelites, they want to be, feel like the, they want black supremacy. And so that feeds into that for some of them. That's how they get into that. But what I see a lot of people do is they actually start out like anti-flat earth. They hear it. They're like, that's so stupid. Let me go research that. Let me, let me see what their arguments are. But then they spend so much time looking at those arguments, so much time listening to this. They, they don't listen to any of the arguments against it. They just listen to arguments for it. That then they start sharing it with friends, what, they're, what they've been hearing and listening to. And when people start criticizing it, they start themselves giving the defenses that they heard from everything they were watching and reading and, and listening to. And as they start explaining it to others, they start believing it themselves. And, and that's the first stage. Then they start getting defensive as people start trying to refute them. They dig their heels down, and, and it becomes a pride issue. And one of the things you'll see with all these groups is pride. That, that's why when you see these people, they are willing to fight tooth and nail over these things because it it's essentially a pride issue. And... They will. That, that's why, as if you heard Dr. Lau say, it's, it is very difficult to convince these people. Scripture is not going to convince them because they, they have it. Should, but it's the Holy Spirit that's ultimately going to convince them. But it, they're, when they're getting to the, the point where they are just turning a blind eye to anything and just expecting that they have all the answers, and, and some of them they like having the answers you don't have, that's what makes it so hard to try to correct people like this. And I saw someone um, in the note in the chat that said uh, Matt Slick had a flat earther on his program and, and he got very angry because Matt tried to correct him. <laughs> and that's what you'll see. Yeah. They do that. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one thing that I noticed on the uh, on your argument, Jason, as you're talking about Job, Job 2610, he has inscribed a circle on the surface of the, of the waters. Uh, and you're, ta you're talking about the rescuing devices. I actually had a conversation with a flat earther and uh, and I honestly thought it was it was a joke. I thought they were kidding, and they used this. and And here's how they used it. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard this type of thing, uh, thinking before. Well, a circle is kind of like a hula hoop. Okay, so it's not a sphere; it's a circle. So it's kind of like a hula hoop. 
and the water's in it, and it talks about this water in it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. This this right here, this disc. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what they believe it is. It's a disc that's yeah. round. See, there's the it's proof. That, there's your proof. And, well, and to use that as that rescuing device to say, hey, look, this can't be talking about a sphere. It can't be talking in, in those terms. And I asked them, I said, well, when did we start using the scientific terms of sphere and things like that? Did we start using this um, at the time of, of time of Job writing, or did we start using this in the 18, 1700s when, uh, when we started looking at the planets and uh, this and the, the way we're doing today, you know? So maybe, maybe you can speak to that as well. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any uh, Hebrew word in the Bible that's translated as sphere. So, uh, yeah. but I think they're missing the last part of that verse, the last part of the verse requires it to be a sphere, not a circle, because the, the it's the boundary between light and darkness that's a circle, not the earth. The boundary between light and darkness, that's where evening and morning uh, are occurring, where you're seeing a sunset or sunrise. That's called the terminator. That's the boundary between light and darkness. And the only way that you can have a, a terminator that is uh, always a circle is a sphere. No other shape will do it. Any other shape you rotate it or you rot- or you move the light around it either way um it's it's sometimes not going to be a circle and it's only a, it's only a sphere where if you have a light source the the division between the illuminated portion and the non-illuminated portion has to be a circle and i realize that that um some folks who say well no it's like a spotlight effect well first of all that would have been foreign to the original audience they didn't have spotlights back then uh, light normally travels in all directions if for away from its source but secondarily, the shape—if if you make—if you—if you bend the Earth out and look look at these uh, projected maps, there there are different ways of making maps where you can distort the Earth in different ways to to get it to be flat, to get it, you know, and that that involves distortion. One of the common ones is where they have an azimuthal azimuthal equal projection, and it's so it puts the North Pole right at the center, and and. And uh, some flat earthers think that's the actual shape of the earth, and they would say, well, see, the, it, it is a circle, this, the, the spotlight effect, it is a circle on the, on the boundary between light and darkness. That doesn't work, because if you, if you look at the positions where the light is, you can call up your friends at those locations, and they should be experiencing sunset and sunrise at the times that, uh, you know, that, that, that Terminator passes over. It doesn't work. It only works on a sphere. So, uh, Job... Job 26.10 really indicates that they knew that the earth was round at that time. And it wasn't until 1,500 years later that, that some uh, non-believers started to embrace that position. Yeah, so Humble Clay, who's a regular here, says, How does Jason Lyle have such a big brain in such an average-sized skull? You know, many of us want to know this, too. Uh, Cody, Cody ended up saying, you can't be a flat earther without also being a moon landing skeptic. True. And, and they, yeah. they do go together. Uh, he also asked this question. Um, do you think the flood had to be a miracle? I don't see any natural way for there to be enough water to cover the Earth's mountains and nowhere for it to go. The, uh, thus, the great flood was miraculous. Well, certainly it was miraculous. The, the um, we need to define what a miracle is, though. A miracle is an is an unusual and extraordinary manifestation of God's power. So, it's something that God doesn't normally do. It's extraordinary. It's for a specific purpose, and uh, that the flood qualifies for that. Uh, the question is, does it violate any natural laws? And the answer is, we don't know. And part of the reason is we don't know what all the natural laws are. Uh, 
So that's that's part of the issue there. But the fact is, God normally works within what we would call laws of nature. In fact, I would say laws of nature are descriptions of the way God normally accomplishes his will. So there, natural law is not any less divine than supernatural manifestation of God's power. They're equally divine. It's just one is one is what normally happens, and the other is something that does not normally happen. So I guess maybe a, a more specific way to put the question is, can we account for the flood uh, via natural phenomena? It's still God, and the answer is perhaps. Uh, there are natural mechanisms that would have been in place where, that would cause a worldwide flood. Plate tech, We think God used plate tectonics to accomplish yeah. the flood, and you don't need any additional waters, plenty of water on the earth. If you just flatten out its features, the earth would be covered with water to a depth of 1.6 miles. So there's plenty of water on the earth. The, the problem is the earth has terrain. It has some sections that are, it has valleys and mountains, and the continents kind of stand up a little bit. But we think during the flood year, the, the, the continents got pushed down a little bit into the into the ocean basins. There are mechanisms to do that. Uh, John Baumgartner and uh, Dr. Russ Humphreys, their model of uh, catastrophic plate tectonics is brilliant. It's, the, it's apparently the mechanism that God used. Now, whether he needed something supernatural to start it, did he speed up radioactive decay that creates additional heat to, to get the plates to start moving maybe um, so, so we don't we don't know we don't know if it violated any laws of physics but it wouldn't have to it wouldn't have to you can do it with plate tectonics it's just something that requires God to start it and then once it once it um, loses its initial energy it kind of coasts into their current position so it's not going to happen again and of course we have a promise from God it will happen again as well Jason uh, question oh, sorry go ahead brother oh right ahead you go right ahead. Sorry. Um, Jason, I guess this is kind of tangentially related to what we're talking about. Uh, so we're going back to the moon. Is that correct? Uh, from what yes. I understand, in a couple of years, Artemis? Yeah, the Artemis, oh, yeah, the Artemis program. Tell us two, a little bit years. about that. Are you excited about that? Or oh, why, yeah. why are we going back? Well, um, I, I'm not I'm not part of the program or anything, so I don't know right. uh, what their motivations are. I'm just excited to see it because – I wasn't alive the last time people were on the moon. And I've always been a little bit envious of uh, the folks who got to see that. I can can just imagine, um, you know, and I've seen videos. I've seen the video of Boulder, Cronkite, you know, just just flabbergasted. There are people walking on the moon. I'd love to take it because I love looking at the moon with my telescope. I'd love to look at it and know that there are people on its surface. That would just be awesome. And, of course, the technology has improved so much today. Hopefully we'll get much, much better video quality than we had back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. So I'm excited to see that. Space exploration has always fascinated me. It's um, In in terms of of just doing science, it's more practical to send unmanned space probes out into space. But there is something exciting about the human component uh, and having people, again, walk on the surface of the moon. I can't wait to see it. I hope it it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait either. It's supposed to be in a couple of years, right? Just Yeah. I don't know. That years. was uh, before COVID hit, though, so that might have set back. <laughs> I don't know. Not the disease okay. itself, but the shutdowns. Well, yeah. you know, and then, then now we got to figure out it's going to have to be into a wokeness, so we got to reschedule. You know, can't it be any white people to go there this time? Um, okay, yeah, Ron what you- says. Uh, now I know that I'm old. I says I saw them orbit the moon for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, the the first memory that I have as a child. Um, so I'm obviously going to date myself, but the first memory that I have as a child is coming down the stairs and my brother was watching them on the moon. 
And mm. that's the earliest memory that I have is sitting and it was because he, he made such an excitement about it. I guess I remembered it. And, you know, so I just sat there and I was like, to me, I, I was so young. I didn't it just look like what I see on TV. It's just a TV show. <laughs> didn't understand the significance of it till much later. Um, Let me say, I, I had a, an opportunity a month or two ago. I was with Jason and uh, such a gracious guy. He took me out and uh, set up his telescope and we got to do some stargazing and it's the first time I have ever seen the moon in a real telescope, and it, it just was breathtaking. Mm. Uh, just absolutely breathtaking. And we saw Saturn and Jupiter and saw one of the moons of Jupiter going across, and the shadow, even we could see the shadow from the moon on the surface of Jupiter. I mean, it's just... Oh, wow. It's just amazing. And I, Jason, I want to thank you again. Jason's a oh, sure. really nice guy. Really nice well, guy. <laughs> so I do have a question well, speaking of hold that. On, hold on. Did you, so, oh, Jason, did you can, see can the I, aliens? Did you see the aliens? Did you see the aliens come across? We, we oh, I'm going to ask about, about it. You're, you're going to have you're going to have to give me that one. So, so Jason, I, I'll, have to, I'll have to say, I called you recently, right? And I asked you because we wanted to get Justin to do a – a talk so literally justin i was you made me so jealous i, I literally called jason and said look i'm, I'm calling you I, I fully admit it's a purely selfish reason we wanted we wanted to talk at your church so i could come see the, your, through your telescope it's happening so. it's happening yeah. I'll the telescope already for you oh, for skies. that's the one thing I, don't, I can't control yeah we'll just, just we'll just have to make sure we stay long enough that if it's not clear one day we ha we have a day <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the things I was, you know, I've always been curious of, Jason, is, you know, reading astronomy and things like this, you end up seeing people talking about where we can see, you know, discussions of an older star versus a younger star based on color, right? Blue stars versus red stars. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's always fascinating to see this, but, you know, could you explain to, to layman, <laughs> this is the hard part. This, by the way, folks, is what shows you the real intelligence, okay, is, is being able to explain this stuff so the rest of us can understand. <laughs> but how, how, do we, how do we measure the distances between, uh, you know, like how we, we, we'll measure distance between us and Beetlejuice. How do we know how far that actually is? How, do, how is that done through, through the, you know, and, and then we can determine colors of, of stars, and that determines age. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, okay. A couple of questions there. Um, I think the first one, how to, how to get the distance to the stars. Uh, that, was, that was problematic for a long time because they are incredibly far away. And so it's not like you can get out a tape measure or anything like that. I mean, you can't even – but, you know, with, with things like the moon and planets in our own solar system – um, well, you know, you get your friend on one side of the earth, you get another friend on the other side of the earth, and they both look at the moon, they compare it to a background star. You can use parallax. You can use geometry to figure out the distance to the moon. And, um, and there are other ways to do it, too. Based on the shadow of the earth on the moon during a, a lunar eclipse, uh, that can get you the size of the moon. In fact, this, this was figured out early on. Uh, Aristarchus was a, a Greek um, a scientist mathematician. He figured out the distance to the moon. Uh, and it, they hadn't been in telescopes back then. He was able to figure it out based on the shadow of the 
Earth on the moon. Brilliant, just using geometry. And he also was able to kind of estimate the size of the sun, which is really tough to do when you don't have telescopes. And he figured out the sun is much bigger than the Earth. He was, as far as we know, the first person to realize that the Earth goes around the sun. He thought it, once he discovered the sun was much bigger, he thought it would be ridiculous for the big thing to go around the little thing. And he suggested that the Earth goes around the sun. This is 300, 400 BC, something like that. And it's interesting because most people didn't believe him. Uh, because they thought if the Earth went around the sun, then the nearby stars should shift relative to the background stars, parallax. And uh, Aristarchus uh, said, well, maybe the stars are so far away you can't see it. He was exactly right. But they didn't have the technology at the time to test it. So it wasn't until the 1500s that the heliocentric solar system was revived. And it wasn't until, I believe, the I think it was in the 1800s that, that people finally detected parallax. Uh, some of the very nearby stars, when the Earth's on one side of the sun, they appear to shift a little bit than when they're on the other side of the sun. And you can simulate this effect if you, if you hold your finger out and blink your eyes back and forth, your finger will seem to shift relative to the background. That's like a, your finger's like a nearby star, and your left eye and right eye is like the Earth being on different sides of the sun. And we can, we can, we can uh, image that these days. And so the nearby stars from parallax, you can determine their, their distance. And that's a nice uh, geometric way to figure it out. You need to know ge- geometry and trigonometry, but you can the math's straightforward once you know that. There are other ways to do it. Once you figure out the nearby stars, because parallax... From, from Earth-based telescopes doesn't go out very far because once you get beyond a few hundred light years, the, 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 the uh, parallax is so small, you can't really detect it. It's blurred out by Earth's atmospheres. We have satellites that can go out much further. But there are other methods by which they can get distances. Uh, one of them is they found out that there are certain stars within the, the parallax um, uh, distance that... Uh, have certain properties. There are things like um, Cepheid variable stars that pulsate. And if you know the period of their pulsation, you know the brightness of the star, its true brightness, and you compare how bright it looks, and that gives you the distance. Kind of like, you know, a car light that's nearby looks very bright. A car light on a distant mountain looks very, very faint. Stars are the same way. If they're if, if you know their true brightness and you know how bright they look, you can calculate their distance. That's a standard candle method. So those are some of the ways. There's there's many different ways that they, they use to get the distances. And I've I've um, looked into some of these. They're good methods. Uh, there's no doubt that they give um, good answers to that. Now, there's this question then about uh, stellar aging. And uh, it, it's true that when well, – okay, let me back up. One of, the, one of the things they discovered when they started compensating for the distance to the stars, or they would find a star cluster, and there you assume all the stars are about the same distance because it's they're part of the same physical cluster. It would be unlikely that one of them is way out, you know, real, real towards you, and then the other one way back here. So um, when the stars are all at the same distance, you can compare their relative brightnesses, and they found that there's a relationship between the brightness of a star and its color, which indicates temperature. And they found that the really bright stars tend to be blue. The faint stars tend to be red. Stars like the sun that are yellow are kind of in between, are kind of in between that. And we know color indicates temperature because that's something that we can test in a laboratory. If you heat up a brick, you heat it up enough, eventually it'll glow red. You heat it up more, it'll glow yellow. You heat it up more, it'll glow white. You heat it up even more, it'll glow blue. Maybe you've seen a, a bulb that, that pops. When, it, when a light bulb pops, uh, briefly the temperature gets very, very hot, and you might notice it's bluish. Uh, that's that's for real. And so there's a relationship between color and temperature. And so they were able to realize that the, the hot blue stars were burning very brightly, and then the cooler red stars were, were not burning as uh, as brightly. And they, they called this the main sequence, this uh, this uh, 
relationship between luminosity and, and um, temperature. Not all stars are, are on that main sequence, but a lot of them are. And the initial thinking was stars start out as hot blue, and then like a chunk of coal over time, they eventually cool off and they go down to red. And so the main sequence was initially interpreted as a time sequence that blue stars eventually become red stars. Now, I have to tell you, nobody believes that anymore. I haven't met a single astronomer that believes that, and it hasn't been believed for decades uh, because we now know that that main sequence has nothing to do with time. It's a mass sequence. Stars that are more massive tend to have um, more pressure in their core, which creates more fusion, creates more energy. You tend, they tend to be blue, and they give off a lot of energy. Stars that are not very massive are little red dwarfs. They don't have as much fusion going on, so their surface temperature is cooler. They don't give as, as much energy. So the main sequence has nothing to do with time, nothing whatsoever. And so a star's color has nothing to do with its age. That being said, because blue stars um, burn up so quickly, they use up their fuel so quickly because they're very luminous, even though they have a lot of fuel available, they're big, um, they use it up very quickly. They can't last very long in time. So if you see a blue star, it has to be young. It can't be billions of years old. And, and seculars would agree with that. Whereas a red star, um, you can't you can't tell even in the secular scheme, you can't tell whether it's um, old or young by its color. Now, I would say as a Christian, all the stars are about the same age because they're all made on day four of the creation week. I don't think any new ones have formed. There are problems with that. Uh, some of them have died. Some of them have exploded. But other than that, I, I would say the stars are all the same age. And there's no evidence that's that's inconsistent with that. So, Jason, we don't know if uh, we don't we don't have any evidence, if I understood you right, that uh, there have been any new stars to form. Like we've never seen right. a, a, a part in the sky that was blank. And now all of a sudden there's a star there. Correct. That's never been observed. Uh, wow. Will will point to what they call star forming regions. But let me clue you in. What they're really seeing there are blue stars. And they know that blue stars can't last billions of years, so they're, they're figuring, well, they must have formed recently, and therefore they're probably still forming in that region. It must be a star-forming region. But the fact is no one has ever seen a star form. The process is supposed to take a long period of time anyway, so it's doubtful that you could. But we don't see things that really resemble stars in the process of formation or anything like that. And there are all kinds of um, theoretical difficulties getting a star to form. Uh, once a star is made by God, uh, its own gravity will keep it together because a star is a ball of hydrogen gas in a relatively small area of space, cosmically speaking. The sun is about 100 Earths across. That's big, but it's nothing compared to the size of our solar system or a nebula. And so the, the secular view is that nebulae, these clouds of gas that are spread out over vast regions of space, their gravity pulls them in and makes a star. All kinds of problems with that because gas pressure, when the nebula is spread out like that, gas pressure normally overwhelms the meager force of gravity. Gas pressure wants to make it expand, right. and I'm not aware of anyone ever um, having data for a nebula that's actually contracting. No one's ever seen that, and you'd, you'd, you'd think, well, yeah, it wouldn't, because as soon as it compresses in, the gas gets hotter, and it wants to repel it again. Uh, magnetic field lines want to repel. It's like pushing two magnets together uh, north to north. It wants to repel, and then there's an angular momentum, too. So there are, th there are several physical things that would tend to prevent a star from forming. So I'm, I'm pretty well convinced it doesn't happen. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I don't, no one's ever seen a star form. I think it probably can't happen. Can I ask a, a couple of questions just to... You just did. I know, and I'm going to ask a couple more. So anyway, <laughs> so, so my, my questions are, um, we've, we've all heard the, the, you know, the problem with the, 
viewing stars exploding and they're you know billions of light years away um the the arguments saying that well god's being deceptive if you know we can see them and it's not really billions of light years away uh you know, there's a a myriad of questions with that i i mean i've heard the argument so many times that oh well we know we've seen stars formed and and things like that so you know having you on and having that kind of clearing that air is really helpful in the apologetic realm. So if you could just kind of talk with that, that'd be great. Yeah, it's hard to give a succinct answer to that because it it involves knowing a little bit about physics, physics of Einstein in particular. I I did write a book called The Physics of Einstein. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I think you wrote a book on that. (laughs) wrote a book on that. Now make sure that when you say it, tell it to me like I'm five. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you've heard that. So the the title of the book is called The Physics of Einstein. Yeah. And it's available at, Biblical Institute, uh, BiblicalScienceInstitute.com. Yeah, and there's three chapters answering that. I'm going to answer it, but I wanted to give you the, <laughs> the more, uh, if you want the full understanding of it, you're going to have to read the book, really. And I have a series, too, on our website at BiblicalScienceInstitute.com. If you go under Topics, Distant Starlight's one of those issues, and I kind of give the rundown at a layman level, just kind of explaining um, what the perceived problem is, attempted solutions, why the other solutions really don't work, the idea that God created the beams of light already on their way, which makes God deceptive, I, I, that's not going to work. Um, but there, there is a way to do it, even within known physics. One of the things that Einstein knew about and wrote about is uh, what we today would call synchrony conventions, and that has to do with how do you define now far away? And that might seem obvious, but it's it's not because things things on Earth, you know. Well, you, you know, you look at your watch, and that's what time it happened. But then we we've come into this pattern of thinking. Well, what, what what I see happen in space actually happened a long time ago. It turns out that's not necessarily the case. The uh, the speed of light, the round trip speed of light, is well known. It's well tested. If you take light, bounce it off a mirror, bring it back. If the distance is set, you'll get the same time every time. Uh, but most people assume that light goes the same speed that way as that as, as coming back, and it doesn't have to be that way. And Einstein recognized that, that we can't actually know the one-way speed of light, and therefore it can be instantaneous. Light can, light can take no time at all to get from galaxies, the most distant galaxy in the universe, to Earth. And, um, of course, now to send a return signal would take time, to, to send a round-trip signal. But we don't need the light to make a round-trip. It just has to get here. And so if you use what's called an anisotropic synchrony convention, that, that means anisotropic means different in different directions, then you can get light here in, immediately. And I actually wrote a paper on this uh, 11 years ago, I think. I wrote a paper on it back for the Answers Research Journal. It's never been refuted. The uh, secularists, uh, have, have mo- actually the secularists who are familiar with physics have said, yeah, he's, he's right about that. So, because there are other there are other papers that have pointed out the same thing, um, Sarkar and Stachel back in '99 uh, published a paper where they pointed out it's it, you can you can see the universe in real time using this convention. So, bottom line is there's a known way to get the light here immediately, not taking any time at all, and yet the light really did come from the star and really reaches Earth. And so, if you take that synchrony convention, then we're seeing the universe in real time. And what bothers people is I'm not saying that that's the only way to do it. I'm just saying that's a perfectly legitimate way to do it, and it's the way the Bible does it. Yeah, so let's <clears throat> let us bring in uh, John here. He's been backstage for a bit. He needed to fix his connection, but he's now in. So, John, you had some questions. Hey. Hi. Uh, thanks again for, for being here, Dr. Lyle. I, sure. I've been 
been a big fan of you for years. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so um, a couple of things. You brought up earlier about um, the flat earth and all that. And then it, it reminded me of I, I served four years in the Navy. And my job in Navy was navigation. And so we actually had to learn about the uh, the celestial navigation. We had a sextant. We had all the books. We had all the calculations that we had to figure out. Um, one of the things whenever we had to navigate by the moon was that we had to calculate the curvature uh, of the Earth. Um, that was one of the formulas that we had to use. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, whenever I come across someone who is a flat earther, I just say, well, figure out then how how to um, navigate by the moon without using the curvature of the earth and you'll see how how far off you are yes <laughs> so yeah um, that's that that was just a thought earlier but my, my main question was this um, there was a post a while ago uh, by Neil deGrasse Tyson your nemesis and uh <laughs> um he said something like this and i don't know if, uh, if uh, andrew can bring up this video or not but um if not i can just go ahead and, and ask the question but he said this he says how long is the video know, yeah what's up how long is the video well the the video is like seven minutes long but i'm not going to do that so no, but you, okay you had a, a four where, four minute mark right yeah the four minute mark is when but he starts actually four four forty you said so how long yeah. do i have to play it for for like a, a minute i mean okay. just yeah all right I, I, hold on let me cue it up i have to just change my audio and then share it so give me one moment we'll get this set up we can do this real time. All right. Ignore the cat. In some countries, that's called a meal. Um, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help it. All right. Here we go. Just tell me when to stop. But you guys are not hearing that through. Oh, I know why. Hold on one second. This is great for for a live show, right? You throw this at me last minute. This yeah. is what professional looks like, guys. You are actually sitting on a rotating earth passing through a tide that is stationary in space. Right, because when I sit there, I think, oh, the water's coming in, going out, coming in, going out. You're on earth that is rotating inside and out of a tide, high and low tides. A tidal bulge. A tidal, tidal bulge. bulge, that's right. So to me, now we uh, we had another uh, Cosmic Queries where we spent a lot of time on that topic, yeah. but I think that's a good one it, it, because it looks like water's moving in and out, but you're the one moving through the tide. Yeah, see, I didn't, yeah. that, that, that to me is counterintuitive, yeah. and I wouldn't. What in the world is he talking about, Dr. Lyle? Because <laughs> I never heard of that before, that you're the it's not the tides that are moving back and forth it's it's you moving through the tides i'm like is this the matrix what is this <laughs> so i just wanted to i wanted to know what have you heard of this do you know about this yeah or, okay. and, and he's uh, he's right uh, more or less he's he's simplified a little bit but yeah the yeah. so the earth the earth's rotating but if you were if you were on a 
if you were on a distant star, kind of above the Earth, looking at it with your telescope, uh, you would see that the moon induces tidal bulges. And those tidal bulges would look more or less stationary. They would kind of stay in the same spot as the Earth rotates underneath them. And so twice a day, you get that, you get high tide, you get low tide, high tide, low tide, right, as you as you rotate around. Now, they do move a little bit because they, they track with the moon. The moon's causing them. But they, they're almost stationary, and the Earth's rotating at about 1,000 miles per hour at the equator. And so it rotates through the, the tides. So it, that's the way it would look if you, were, if you were watching it from a distant star. We're on a rotating planet, and so from our perspective, it looks like the tides come in twice a day. I see. Wow. Okay. I just thought that, that was something that um, I thought. I mean, I knew the moon had something to do with the tides and all that, but I mm-hmm. had no idea that that was that was the case. <laughs> um. Hey, and one more thing, uh, and and this might get complicated. I remember watching like the uh, Learning Channel years ago, and it had Stephen Hawking on there, and he had a theory that black holes were actually like the entry point for wormholes and then quasars were uh, the exits for, for, uh, for, for, for a wormhole. Have you heard of this before or, I mean, or is there any kind of uh, truth to this or it hasn't been proven? Yeah, I've heard of it. The, um, the quasar thing is no longer believed. Okay. Uh, theoretically, when you look at the math of general relativity, uh, you, you look at a black hole. You could you could theoretically connect that black hole to another black hole, either in a different universe or in our own universe, but mm-hmm. with time flowing in the opposite direction. And so, uh, theoretically, um, what is a black hole would be a white hole on the other end of it. Yeah. It's, okay. it's the the math indicates that it can happen, but that doesn't mean it has to happen in reality. So, okay. uh, and we now think quasars are actually black holes. Um, it's just that what there's material that's that's funneling into the black hole and it heats up. It gets incredibly hot because the energy involved is enormous, and okay. some of that some of that material instead of falling in gets channeled away out the, out the north and south pole of a, of the rotating black hole. And the, those beams are very, very powerful. We think it's a galactic mass black hole that's beaming radiation. That's, that's I think, a good explanation. It's the best we can come up with because it's the only thing we can think of that, that, that's that energetic. So right. both quasar, so quasars probably are fueled by black holes. Black holes themselves, um, yes, you can theoretically. You can theoretically have a, a device that's like a black hole called a wormhole that connects two points in space. Um, but they've, it's, it's now been pretty well proven that you can't have – uh, traversable wormholes. Like if you've ever seen the the sci-fi program Stargate, where they go through a wormhole and they end up, they take a step, one step through, and then they're they're on the other side of the galaxy, right. and that's a neat idea. But it, it, you can make some pretty good arguments that wormholes don't exist. Black holes, yes. Wormholes, no. And even if wormholes did exist, they wouldn't be traversable. So it wouldn't be like on Stargate where you can actually go through them. So it's, it, it all comes down to the math. The math's very complicated, but the, the, the bottom line is black holes, yes, wormholes, no. Apparently, you haven't been watching Marvel, and yeah. you don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> if you had been watching Marvel, you'd know that they saved the whole universe by doing that. Don't they so, go back in time? Oh, that's right. They go back in time. I, I don't remember. It's it's mm. complicated. Okay, they so back, yeah, they went back in time in I, one of those movies, yeah, and, and, I, and, like and I know that because I actually watched one. I, I you know I watched the was it Endgame, which I was told was mm-hmm. like 20 movies in, and you 
I didn't understand any of the... There's all these references, yeah. and I was told I had to first watch the first 20 movies to understand it. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but now would be a good time, uh, Just, Pastor Justin, now would be a good time for me, because I think that I could be wrong, but I think a lot of people's heads are hurting. And so yeah. now might be a good time to, to, you know, since they're thinking about their hurting heads, to let them know about getting a my pillow, <laughs> Because... After this talk, and, and folks, this is on podcast, so you can go and re-listen to it to go, okay, I missed some of this. I got to go check this out. You can get it on podcast, but your head is still going to hurt. So go get yourself a my pillow. so when you do lie down at night, you can get yourself a good sleep. Uh, so, and... I absolutely love my my pillows. Um, I have several of them. One that I travel with. Justin knows that I travel with my own pillow because I love it that much. I love the topper, but I've recently got his their uh, their bath towels. And and I've said on this program before, I'm picky about towels. Uh, I I do not. I, all my towels it would be these heavy towels because I like very absorbent towels. Problem being is I don't like heavy towels. And as soon as I got the my pillow towel. I was like, this isn't going to work because I just, it was too light. I immediately thought it wasn't going to be absorbent enough. I was wrong. See, I admit when I'm wrong, Justin, and you think I don't, but I was wrong and uh, it, it was super absorbent. I absolutely loved it. It was great. Made right here in the United States, by the way. So when you get a my pillow, a towel set, the toppers that they have, you're not only supporting an American-made company, you are also supporting Striving for Eternity. So the way to do it is just go to MyPillow.com or call 1-800-873-0176. That's 800-873-0176. And make sure to use the promo code SFE to get all the discounts and at the same time support Striving for Eternity so that we can continue doing these shows. And so we appreciate you guys doing that. Now, I saw some questions that we... some. Some, I want to, I'll hit some of these biblical questions that came up earlier. I just got to scroll up to find them. And I, and I have some things that um, I also wanted to talk about. A book you recently wrote, want to talk about that. Um, but there were some biblical questions, and I just got to go find it. Here we go. Um, so the first one that we had was, Dr. Lyle, how do you make sense of the waters above the expanse uh, slash firmament, or the waters above the heavens, and what is this referring to? Okay, the so this is uh, during the creation week. God makes the Earth's initially water; it's a water ball, and God on day two separates. He creates a rakia. That's the Hebrew word for expanse or firmament, and he separates the waters that are under the rakia from the waters that are above or upon. Actually, would be a better translation. Uh, upon the uh, rakia, and so the, apparently there's water in the sky and there's water uh, below the sky. So the, the rakia seems to be sky, and then at at the end, then God calls the rakia shamayim, which is heaven. So God calls the sky heaven, and so I would take them to be the same thing uh, because God does he equates them. So what are the waters? We, the waters below, then, we find out later on day three, God separates the waters below and, and lets land come forth, and the waters are gathered to one place, and God call, those are called seas. So we know what the waters below are. They're, the, they're water on Earth's surface, oceans, seas. The question is, what are the waters above? And uh, 
I got to tell you, I'm in the minority on this. Most creationists disagree with me, but my, my opinion is that they're clouds because clouds are liquid water droplets in suspension. The Bible talks about clouds being liquid water droplets uh, in Job. That, that you know, they're, that God binds up waters into clouds, and the clouds don't burst under the weight of them. And so, I think that's uh, and that fits the context of Genesis two because Genesis one is is telling about things that the Hebrews would have been familiar with, and how those things came to be. And so they were familiar with the land, and so God describes how the land came about. They were familiar with animals and fish and birds, and so God describes how those were created. They were familiar, apparently, with waters above, because Job was, that's 2000 B.C., uh, as being clouds. So I think that's uh, the most likely explanation. I took a look at a bunch of different commentaries on it. I think I took a look at 11 different commentaries on that, and all 11 said that it was clouds. There are some creationists who want to put it out at the edge of the universe um, I think that's pushing it. I don't think that fits the context of Genesis. Yeah, and, and this so if is, I could, well, this, then you just say this is the thing, folks. Yeah. If you don't realize that, you know, a lot of people know Dr. Lyle for his his knowledge of of things when it comes to, um, you know, astronomy, physics, things like this. Uh, he has a great handle on scripture as well. I, I yeah. had to. He. he <laughs> Hey, I don't know. If you remember this? I, he, came, he, Jason was staying at my house, and we had, actually had a Bible study that night. And I asked him if he wouldn't mind teaching it, since we were in Genesis. And he's like, "No, brother, brother, you, you, you go ahead." So I had to trick him into teaching. See, I, every time as I was asked a question, I gave half an answer, and he just couldn't help himself. He had to give the other half. And by the end of the night, he was teaching, and I just sat back and said, "Good, that's what I was hoping for." <laughs> but he he understands the scriptures very well, and and I hope you saw. How he gets into the Hebrew to make his. This is not just a, you know, I'm making this point because a lot of people think of you, Dr. Lyle, as just like a scientist who happens to be a Christian. And well, you, you are a scientist that's a Christian, but you handle the scriptures outstandingly. Um, I, I've Thank seen you. you do that. It's kind of, I say the same thing with Justin Peters here, because people stereotype him with word of faith, and if you hear him handle the scriptures, he's one of the best exegetes that that I know, and, and very few people ask him to speak on that, uh, which is sad. But uh, Justin Pierce, you had, uh, you had some, then we had some more questions. Yeah, I, I want to first thing, uh, let everybody know that I did write down 9-2-2021 that Andrew admitted that he was wrong. Uh, I did put that down. So, so Wait, hold it up again. I'll, I'll blow you up there. Hold, hold. Oh, yeah, let's put it on, on record. It's it's actually there. Andrew admitted he was wrong. Uh, it's on record. So that everybody, we, we do have it. He did it once. Um, um, the, the, well, what I wanted to ask is, uh, you, you said you're in the minority view here. Um if I'm not mistaken, the majority view is the canopy theory. Maybe, maybe you could speak to that because that is an issue. It is, it is one to talk about, um, and you know, having to do with scientific realities. There, um, you know, Dr. MacArthur actually still holds to that view. Uh, others do. Uh, some don't. You know, it's speculative, in my opinion. Uh, you're talking about Genesis creation. Uh, time, so it's 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 hard to know, but maybe you can come. Well, yeah, but but zoom in on this because you said you said specifically creationists, and most creationists don't hold to the canopy anymore. So right. then, answer the I canopy thing, and then answer what it is that most what creationists. Is the, what would is be. the view that now? So yeah, okay, yeah. So the the canopy model, it was it was a it was a neat idea. It was the idea that the uh, original Earth had a layer of water, either water vapor. In some in some 
cases, ice crystals that's sort of in orbit. It's on top of the atmosphere. And there was always some question as to whether or not that would be stable, but in any case. And the idea is that would give the Earth, it would create a greenhouse effect and give the Earth kind of a, a subtropical temperature from pole to pole. And there is evidence that before the flood, the Earth did have a kind of a subtropical temperature almost everywhere. You find fossils of tropical plants in places like Australia or um, um, Antarctica, I meant to say, Antarctica. And so it's uh, it's interesting that the world was different then. And then some people thought maybe that would suppress uh, violent weather, things like you wouldn't have hurricanes, things like that. And maybe it would even block a little bit of the ultraviolet light so you people wouldn't get cataracts the way they do today. And maybe that's why people lived longer, because they had extra atmospheric pressure. It explained a lot of things. It was a neat scientific model. And some people thought that that, that that was what the Bible was referring to with these waters that are above the heavens. And then the idea is that collapsed at the time of the flood. And that provided the water for the flood in, in, in many models. And uh, one person who is pr- probably the world's expert on this, Larry Vardaman, uh, Dr. Larry Vardaman, he's a Ph.D. in, I think, in meteorology. He's an expert on atmospheric science. And um, he studied this, and he really tried to get it to work. He really wanted the vapor canopy to work, but he found out that no matter what you did, if you put any substantial uh, water vapor, water vapor is a really good greenhouse gas. People think of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is nothing compared to water vapor. Uh, water vapor traps heat, and if you put any significant water, it, it, it not only makes the Earth's temperature hot, it makes it too hot, way too hot. For life, And so uh, Dr. Vardaman found you had to reduce the canopy to almost nothing to get it to um, to get the Earth's temperature, surface temperatures to be compatible with what is necessary for life. And so, and of course, you make it that thin. It doesn't really do any of the things that you wanted it to do. It doesn't increase the atmospheric pressure. It doesn't provide any significant water for the flood. There's always been some question as to biblically whether or not that's allowable, because for one thing, the the waters above. Biblically, they're not something that disappeared at the time of the flood because the Psalms refer to the waters above. Uh, Praise him, you waters that are above the heavens. And that's written well after the flood. So apparently, whatever these waters are, they're still there. And that makes me think it's part of the natural weather phenomenon. It's clouds. Uh, so um, I'm not aware of any uh, PhD creation scientists that hold to the vapor canopy anymore. There might be some. I'm not aware of any. It's, it's, it's fallen out of favor both for scientific reasons and possibly because it's, it may not be compatible with Scripture. It was a neat idea. The, one of the most common views today among uh, creation physicists and uh, creation astronomers, with myself as an exception, is that the waters are surrounding the entire universe. They're sort of a giant sphere that God lifted away from the earth and put at the rim of the universe. And the, and the reason for that is because they, they, the, it does talk about the waters being upon or above the the Rakia, which we find later is Shamayim, which is the universe. It's the same place where the stars are put. So I get that. I, I, I get the the, uh, the logic of that. But at the same time, uh, Hebrew is pretty flexible in terms of what we talk about. It takes place in the sky. Uh, Shamayim, Rakia, I think they just mean sky. So you could talk about the birds flying in the sky. You could talk about the stars being in the sky. They're not in the same chamber, but they're both in the sky. And so it's perfectly appropriate to talk about the waters above or upon the sky being upon the atmospheric component and not necessarily the celestial component. And I think that better fits the context of Genesis, uh, Genesis explaining things that the Hebrews were familiar with, which is why it doesn't talk about microbes or things like that that they wouldn't have known about at the time. It's explaining how the world we see around us came to be. Jason, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, go ahead, Justin. 
Okay. Oh, this, ahead, this, is, this is a, a maybe just a bit of a, a kind of a nerdy question, and I, I don't even know the proper name for this star, but I was watching one of these videos on YouTube about uh, space and some of the paradoxes, but apparently fairly recently, within the last few years, I think, there was a star, there is was a star, uh, and all of a sudden it disappeared. Have you heard about this? It, it disappeared with no Nova, no explosion. It was there, and then it was gone. No, I've not heard of that. I've not heard of that. I, I, I know stars explode from time to time, but I've never heard of one just vanishing. Well, that, yeah. Send me information on that. I'll try to look into it. Okay, I, I will. I'll see if I – in fact, I know where I can find it. But, okay. uh, yeah, so I was fascinated by that. I'll send it to you. Well, let's, okay. let's, let's shift into other fascinating things, um, because I know, I know somewhere there was someone that was, um, where was that comment? Someone was asking for Dr. Lyle to talk on fractals. So I can't find the comment, but oh, here it is. Uh, fractals, 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 they, they <laughs> blow my mind in a beautiful way. Well, I, I'll say this, um, and I know that I think you guys said that it, this appears backwards in my Looks fine on my camera, but it's backwards on you, so you, you can hold up yours there. Okay, so this is the new book that you've written. It comes with this DVD, DVD, CD, I don't know, it's with software. It's fract- the fractal software that you used to create the images, which, as I told you, you, you really ruined my sermon prep. Like, because, like, Thursday night is not a time to, or whatever night it was, to start playing with this disc, because I was up to, like, three in the morning just looking at this stuff, and just zooming in, zooming out, and playing with it, and all of a sudden I realized it's, like, three-something in the morning, I'm like, I gotta get to bed! <laughs> so, yeah, I had some extra work to do on the sermon prep that I didn't do that night. But, uh, I've, I've, I love the talk you do on fractals. Uh, you now have a book on it. I know that... You know, you were you were trying to. It was a while when you used to do this in, I think, PowerPoint or something. You just couldn't get the it to work the way you needed. You've redesigned that talk. If folks, if you haven't had Dr. Lyle out at your church to speak, well, first off, go book him now. Okay, go to the the website and and book him. Okay, BiblicalScienceInstitute.com. Book him to speak. One of the talks that you could do. His starlight talk, amazing. Uh, but the other one that I, I love is the fractal talk. I loved yeah. it because I never got to really see this stuff unless you did the talk. But now I got the software. <laughs> and I got and I got the very colorful book. I mean, this book, folks, I don't know if this is will even do it justice, but it shows all the fractals as you explain. It's really, you explain your talk. Look at those things. Look just like broccoli. Um <laughs> You're, folks, if you don't get that joke, you're going to have to get the book and, you know, go watch the talk. But why? tell us about this book. Tell us about why fractals, how this, discri- how this shows God's image and why you love broccoli so much. <laughs> I don't like broccoli. But, um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, this is something that I read about. I was, I was in, it was in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. I was in high school. Um, and and these had just been discovered, these these fractals. And the particular one that we're exploring in this book, for most of the book, about the first half of the book, is called the Mandelbrot set. And um, what it is is uh, mathematicians found that there are certain algorithms where you you run a you, you take a number and you run it through this little formula and you get another number. You take the output and you put it back in the input. Do it again. You get a new number. Do it again. Do it again. You do it again. And they found that depending on the formula uh, and depending on the number you put in, 
the the sequence of outputs would either get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, or it would kind of stay small. In some cases, kind of peter out, kind of go down to zero. And the interesting thing was you couldn't tell just by looking at the number in the formula what, what it would do. You couldn't tell how it was going to behave. And this is an example of what mathematicians call chaos. You could take a very small difference in the starting number and an enormous change in the outcome. What, you know, you could take, say, the number one. You put it through the formula and it kind of stays small. But you put in the number 1.000001, you run it through the formula and it gets really big. You get totally different output. And they were, in, in particular, investigating the formula z squared plus c. Very simple formula, but you, you put the number through it, and you don't know what's going to happen. And so in the, um, in, in the late 70s and early 80s, computers were starting to get fast enough that they could do these calculations repeatedly and very quickly, uh, faster than a human could do it. And so it occurred to somebody, well, let's make a map to see if there's a pattern, because we, we want to figure out which numbers stay small or part of the set and which numbers get really big and are, are off the set. And when they made a map of it, they used a computer to, to make a, a map and the shape they got was this, and nobody was expecting that shape. It's just, it's, it's, it's strange, and, and it's kind of beautiful. And then the really cool thing is if you zoom in on it, you'll find smaller versions of the original shape. You zoom in on a little section of the tail, and you get that, that shape right there. And, and that's what a fractal is. A fractal is something that uh, it's got the same, when you zoom in on it, you see the overall shape on a much smaller scale. And you can zoom in on that little baby, and it's got a little... Uh, it's got a little baby version right there at the tip. You can zoom in on that, and it's, and it's the same thing. And you can do that again and again and again. It goes on forever. And there are certain sections of this shape you zoom on, and they're incredibly beautiful. You get these wonderful spirals and uh, things that look like, like seahorses, kind of these seahorse structures that you sit, see there in the Valley of the Seahorses, and elephants and double spirals. It's amazing. Nobody was expecting this because you're, you're just you're, all you're doing is investigating which numbers belong to the set, and the map is gorgeous. And it's surprising to everybody. So who knew that numbers had such beauty and complexity built in it? Because that's all you're doing. You're taking God's numbers, you're running through a little formula, and you're seeing which ones, you know, the map that results is stunning. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it, it, as I learned more about this, and I, I started exploring this set, I, I, um, I realized based on the formula, well, I could do that. I could write a program that, that plots that map, and I did, and I started exploring it. It was gorgeous, and I just wanted to share this with people because what, what you're seeing here, the, the images in this book, I, you need to understand. Uh, somebody asked me who did the cover, and I had to say, well, um, no human being designed that shape. This was, the cover was done by God. I picked the colors, but the shape is built into numbers by God, the creator of numbers, and there's no secular explanation for that. And so there's this there's this universe, the, the Mandelbrot set. It's an infinite universe. You can zoom in on it infinitely. And you can literally spend the rest of your life just zooming in on one section of the Mandelbrot set. It goes forever because it's math. It's not made of atoms. It's made of math. And so and that's remarkable. There's this new universe for us to explore. And I wanted to share that with people that, hey, there's this new universe that there's this, this secret code that's built into math. We discovered it in the 1980s. Our ancestors had no idea it was there, and it reflects God's glory and his beauty and his mind, his infinite mind. And I say there's no secular explanation for it, none whatsoever. Yeah, it, has there it, been okay. an offer? Has there been an attempt at, at explaining this from a secular point of view? Not that I've seen. I mean, th there are patterns that exist in math, but in terms of ha the beauty that you see in the Mandelbrot set— I haven't seen any attempt 
attempted explanation. I played devil's advocate in the book and tried to come up with some, and but then they're very easy to knock down. You say, well, uh, you know, uh, there's there's beauty built in the math. How do you explain that? Well, where does math come from? I say it comes from the mind of God. It's the way God thinks about numbers. But how would a secularist? They can't they can't appeal to that. They would say, well, maybe math was something that people made up to help us get along in the universe. That's not going to work because if if it was something that if math Mathematical laws were inventions of people, like civil laws. Then you'd have different different countries would have different maths. Yeah. That doesn't work. The architects in India use the same math as the architects in the United States because that's that's what the physical universe obeys. It's universal. There's a universality to math, which indicates it's not something people created. We could have created it differently. In fact, the the planets orbited based on mathematical principles before human beings existed. For a couple of days, or in a secular view, for billions of years. So math existed before people. It can't be a creation of people, and yet math right. exists in a mind. It's, it's a conceptual entity. It's how we think about numbers, almost and like logic. That's a problem for the secularists because they don't have minds before people. People were the first minds to evolve. But in the in the Christian worldview, we have a mind before people, the mind of God, and that mind precedes even the physical universe. So we have no problem explaining why the physical universe obeys math. Uh, why math is so useful and why it's beautiful. It's because it reflects the thinking of the triune God of Scripture. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, figuring out how many uh, digits are in pi. <laughs> yeah, God I, knows all of them, but, but there's an infinite number of them. Yeah. And, and that's that can be proven, it's just we don't know what they are beyond a certain, it's on a certain range. Yeah. But God does. Okay. I'm going to see who, who that... That's Justin making the noise. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it's me. No, no, it was, it was uh, the other Justin, the one Sorry, that cringed. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> it was it was my wife uh, uh, getting some ice. Ah, uh, okay. So. I thought I maybe thought was, it was that. I thought she was beating that dog. <laughs> that's, no, no, I thought I thought it was. It's that's not a oh, dog. Rock. That's not a dog. But I did see it on uh, camera. Yeah, it's that's a, a rat with hair. Uh, but no, uh, it's a cute dog. <laughs> dude, I've I've seen rats in New York that about the size of Justin's dog. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one thing I do want to point out is my, my two favorite people are, are, are here in, in this show with me. And I'm not uh, one Justin, of them. And you're not one of them. Uh, Justin and Jason, I, I got to tell you, I, I just have enormous respect. I, I love you guys. I think, you know, your humility, your your example, your godliness, just just the way that you guys are, um, are both um, willing to sit down and talk. My, my kids – they love you guys. You know, we went to the Ark, Ark Encounter, and uh, uh, Jason, I don't know if you remember or not, we just sat and talked for a good while about you know, Starlight and all these other issues, and my kids were just enamored. They were just they were just so shocked. Jason, you know, just uh, it, it's it's such a it's such a a, a privilege to to have people that my family can look up to, and and you know, Justin, you too, brother, you know that, uh, you know how I feel about you. Um, one thing I, I want to point out to everybody just for the is, record, his kids used to look up to me, but obviously they've moved on to bigger yeah, and better things. <laughs> yeah, they got over it. No, actually, we look up. We love Andrew too. But, but my one thing I want to point out is that uh, related to all of these different um, apologetic issues, and I, I, I brought it up earlier, it's cute and funny. There are people that legitimately push the argument for aliens. And, and this, that, and the other, 
these two guys below me, Justin and Jason, you guys talked about this issue on the alien conspiracy, all that stuff. You got video of it. I watched it and I loved it. It was, it, it, it ties into this guys. It, it, it ties into this, this conspiracy of it can't be God. It can't be the way God says things. It's gotta be something else. We have to tie in evolution. We have to tie in human mind principles you know, even with the fractals, you're talking about something that only God can do. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're talking about all, all these issues are all apologetic issues. And it all begins with God. And if we go back to the scripture and we go back to God, we can always give an answer, give an account, and a reason for the hope that lies within us. Yep. Amen. So... Uh, let me let me get to some of the other questions that I saw. I'm going to look for them now. You know, when I put this show up. I'll, I'll ask you one real quick question while I look for some of this others. Um, you know, Jason, I told you I, I sent you the, the 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 advertisement for the show, and I was glad that you got it. So I said we were going to talk about flat Earth. We did. Uh, we were going to talk about fractals, and we did. And we we're going to talk about life, the universe, and everything. And the answer is forty-two. Thank you. 42. All right. And, and those who don't know that have not read Douglas Adams, but I was glad that you picked up on the on the humor there. Uh, okay, so here's I think every astronomer knows that. I've even seen it in a technical paper one time. There was there was some number that worked out to be forty two, and they had a footnote, and they and they cited Hitchhiker's Guide, Hitchhiker's, Hitchhiker's Guide, Guide to the, the Galaxy. galaxy. Yep. <laughs> yeah, basically, the, for the short, the, so people don't have an inside joke. Basically, the short of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that the Earth was created as a supercomputer to figure out the answer for life, the universe, and everything. And the answer was 42. 42. But yeah. when they had the answer, they forgot what the question was, so they had to create another supercomputer to figure it out. By the way, the rats were the ones that, lab rats were the ones that were actually the brilliant scientists yeah. there. All right, yeah. so here's, here's a question for you. Um, uh, Dr. L, two quick questions. What do you think is meant by God stretched out the heavens? Second one is, in regards to uh, ASC, why could light travel faster in one direction but slower in the opposite? So could you answer those? With regard to stretching out the heavens, I think it's as literal as that can be understood. The universe has increased in size since God created it. It, He made it big. It's bigger now. He stretched it out. Uh, whether that happened during the creation week or whether it's continuing to happen, I think that might be what we're seeing with these redshifted galaxies, the expansion of the universe. I think that's referred to uh, in Isaiah forty twenty two as one of the verses that indicates that stretching out of the heavens. So, uh, yeah, the universe is getting bigger, apparently. Uh, with regard to the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, uh, why would light travel faster in one direction but slower in the opposite because of, of human stipulations. Uh, it turns out that there there is no objective way to synchronize two clocks separated by a distance where everyone in the universe will agree that they're synchronized. At best, you can come up with a system where you can get a group of people to agree on it, but, but not everyone. And that's due to a principle called the relativity of simultaneity. And uh, so, for example, if, if I say these two clocks are synchronized by whatever means, and my friend who's moving relative to me, he's got a different velocity, he's in a different position. He will, using the same mechanism from his point of view, he will not say those two clocks are synchronized. And one way that people do that is they'll send out a light beam and they'll assume that the light takes the same time to go out as it does come back relative to themselves. But you see somebody who's moving relative to that person would not see the light going C faster than the person and C uh, back. Uh, 
because uh, that person's in motion relative to the other person. So there's, there's no way to do it. And because you can't exactly synchronize two clocks objectively, there's no objective thing. There's no such thing as an objective one-way speed. It, it's relative. It depends on, on your perspective. And for that reason, there, is, there really is no such thing as a one-way speed of light in terms of an objective property of the universe. It's a human stipulation. And that's something that Einstein wrote about. He said, you know, the idea that light going that way is at the same speed as that way. He says it's not a property of the universe. It's not. He says it's a stipulation which I can make my own free will in order to arrive at a definition of simultaneity. I know that's counterintuitive, but the the bottom line is the nature of space and time is different from what most people think it is. Uh, I've written a book on the topic. If you want the details, the physics of Einstein goes into that. But the bottom line is you can choose the speed of light, the one-way speed of light, to be the same in all directions, or you can make any other choice as long as the round-trip speed averages out to C, which is 186,282.397 miles per second. Uh, in any other one-way speeds, that's up to you. And that tells you then how to synchronize clocks. The reason that becomes important um, is really with starlight. You know, how, how do we, how can we have... All, see all the stars we do that are so far away well if this if the light coming toward us is say instantaneous wouldn't be a problem so chris chris calculus man hudson asks this question does the physics of einstein book contain any calculus at all <laughs> i um i i wanted it to be readable to layman and so i really avoided calculus as much as i could but there is there is one appendix that does have some calculus in it um, there, there, in order to derive E equals MC squared, I couldn't think of how to do it exactly using algebra only, so I had to use calculus for that one. But it's in the appendix, so you can you can skip that part if you want. Oh no, I think that he's gonna he's gonna he'll yeah. go buy the book just for that. That's that's yeah, and I mean with, take with it apart and bring it back together with the nickname of Calculus Man. You know that he obviously is gonna want to just he just wants more of the calculus. I think right, but and with the question you. And there were certain other things, too, that I could have used calculus, but I really tried to avoid it because I want, I want everybody to understand the physics of Einstein, and not everyone's had calculus. So, And, and that, uh, I think, sure. is that is your yeah. only book that you did self-published, right, for that reason, I believe, yeah. right? I wasn't sure it would sell, and I didn't want to burden New Leaf with a book that might be a dud, so I self-published it. But it, 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 sold, it sold pretty well. People I enjoyed it. Good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Even I could understand it. <laughs> Since since Justin was picking on me, actually, since Justin was wow. picking on me, you know, here, did you read this one, Justin? Melissa says Andrew Airport's a good guy too. Also thankful for your ministry, brother. See, <laughs> so you pick on me, but there's there's some of the people that actually appreciate it. Obviously, not Chris Honholds. He's been he told you to frame that uh, note you had. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Justin or Justin, you guys have any any? We got about. Uh, 10 minutes left in the show. I don't know if you guys had any questions that you wanted to ask of Dr. Lyle while he's here. Don't all speak at once, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm so, I'm just trying to, to, to drink it all in and I'm just enjoying every bit of it. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful. It's been really good. Uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be trying to send, I'll send all this out to uh, my professors now because I've been trying to tell them that they need to get both you guys uh, Andrew, you included. I'm trying to get all you guys to come to to the seminary down at the Shepherd's Theological Seminary and and do uh, some of the discussions there. I'm I'm really hoping that they'll let it happen. Well, you and know, you, you know it. that I would be nervous 
I'd be nervous. Cause I know why. And you know why. Week we're going to do what? What, yeah. what are we doing next week? Yeah, because because we have a, so so he actually goes to school with the, the uh, one of the professors there used to be my professor, uh, Dr. David Berggraf, who will be on next week. Um, talking just war theory and can we defend ourselves will be uh, Dr. David Berggraf, who you may not have heard of. If He's another one, like, like with, as you hear with Jason, with all this astrophysics stuff, he's that way when it comes to history and theology, okay? Just knows his stuff. Crazy uh, how much information he, he packs in his head. He also, I think he was a chemist. I think that's where his, he's got his either master's or PhD is in chemistry. Uh, but he uh, he really good. He did his dissertation on just war theory, and so uh, Matt's been working on articles asking the question: Can we defend ourselves? Uh, really, an issue for CARM in Africa, where they're being attacked and things, and they're being asked to answer this. And so, next week we're going to have more of a kind of a panel discussion type setup with with them, and uh, so that's going to be very interesting. I would be nervous though if I came to school to speak because. Uh, Dr. Bergeraff and I spoke at a conference together, and he was taking notes fervently as as I'm preaching. And I was like, oh, no, like the whole time I'm thinking, like the only time I see that is like, you know, in preaching class, right? <laughs> yeah. Professors, you know, and I was like, okay, what? I'm like, okay, what did I do wrong? Because you were taking all kinds of notes. He's like, no, I was actually taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> But, I'm going to be quiet for all of next week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to say a word. I'm just going to tell you. it's. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to say a word. Uh, I'm going to have Justin and Jason have you guys come back in next week and, and talk about just war so I can be quiet. Yeah, well, you know, we'll have to see. We, we already had the one where Justin and Justin against Anthony, kind of. Actually, I think it was Justin Justin and I against Anthony almost. It seemed that way. We, But... Uh, we're just well, different can, views that we have you. in it, and, there, and that's that's the whole thing. Why we wanted to do it as a show is because there are a lot of differing views with just war theory, and when can we defend ourselves? When is it acceptable? Is it ever acceptable? Uh, I was trying to get uh, Phil Johnson to join us, but unfortunately, he's got an elders meeting. I was like, "Come on, man, get your priorities straight." I mean, an elder at Grace Community Church, you're gonna that that meeting is gonna be more important. Well, yeah, but he he has some great uh, things he wrote on his early early blogs. If you were reading them back then, and so I'm probably gonna pull some of that in to the discussion. Um, but Justin Peters, anything yes, you'd yes, like well. to anything you'd like to say promote. Before we give J- Jason the last uh, last section, say or promote? Um, no, I don't. I don't suppose, um, Jason. We, I, I think I've asked you this before when I interviewed you. But uh, so our uh, our son is just a mediocre size star. Correct? Can you can you give us an idea? Some of the larger stars, Canis Majoris, and I think there's. I know Beetlejuice is a big one, but. Um, as best we know, as best we know, roughly how big can stars get compared to our sun? Uh, they can get quite a bit bigger. Our, our sun is about 100 Earths in diameter. So uh-huh. think about that. I, I got to see a, um, a transit of Venus back in 2012, I think. Yeah, 2012, where Venus crossed in front of the sun. And Venus is the same size of Earth. So it was just it was interesting to see the Back. It's like that's us. Um, wow. So the sun's a hundred Earths across. Uh, there are Antares, for example, or Betelgeuse. They're both about this, roughly the same size. They're about six hundred suns, suns across. 
So they're enormous, and you can, they can stars can get a little bit bigger than that. They can get, I'd say, stars can get up to over a thousand times the diameter of the sun. Uh, you put a star like that where our sun is, we'd be inside it. It would it, the orbit would extend out way beyond Mars. Uh, they get big. It turns out they can't get too much bigger than that because there's a certain there's a luminosity limit called the Eddington limit where they would essentially blow themselves apart because of the the, the uh, run, you get runaway fusion in the core, but. So there is a, there is a maximum size of a star, but they get pretty big. So pretty if, big. if you have a star that is a thousand times the diameter of our sun, how many suns would fit inside that volume? So it'd be a thousand cubed, basically, just to give you a feel for it. I can't so even conceive that. I just so you realize that means it's going to take you longer than a week to drive around it. Yeah. That is, it, it depends on the vehicle. You can't comprehend. The no, not comprehend that there was a video that had the different sizes, mm-hmm. and I got lost at, you know, just like within this couple of seconds, it goes through, and it's like, well, you can't figure out the, the relationship. Th- there's a great video. It's at the, It plays in the planetarium at the Creation Museum that Justin yeah. wrote. <laughs> and yeah, and the, neat, one, yeah, the really neat thing, as well. if people haven't gone to the Creation Museum at the planetarium, the, the really neat thing, and I've told you this before, that I love that you did with that is, so you take us out into space, and you're showing us you know all these bigger stars and farther out, and here's this one, Betelgeuse, and this, and, you know, and then you bring us all the way out of what we can what we can see and, and guess from the universe. And then you say, okay, I'm going to, every, every box, you put these boxes and it's like, okay, every box is so much, so many light years. And now we're going to return home. And you're just, it's just interesting how you're just bringing us all the way from like the outer, outer edges. And it's like, okay, here's what the stars will look like from all the way out here as we're coming back home. And of course you stop it right at the creation museum. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, that, that is, that's, I, I, I've seen it plenty of times. I love seeing it. It, it really, the, the thing that that does is two things. One, shows you how awesome our God is because he created this, this universe when people had no way of seeing it, no way of understanding the, the, the distances, the complexity and all that. He just created that because he wanted to, because it shows his glory. And the other thing it does is help me to realize how small we are. I mean, we as human beings yeah. think we are like, we're it. And yet the reality is we're very small and God is very big. And let me end by just encouraging folks with so many people who've been struggling with everything going on in the media. Uh, it's good to remember that God is, God is big. God is awesome. We're, we're little. The, the things going on in our world right now, this is small stuff for God. He can he can handle these things. He knows what he's doing, and so th- this is the thing. I always amazed when I when I look at the universe and study anything with it. It's just it blows me away. And then I realize it, people never knew this for all these centuries, you know. But God knew. That's yeah. the amazing thing. So, Jason, any last words that you want as we close out? Uh, no, thanks for thanks for having me on. It was fun always to get together with you guys and. I appreciate your your time. All right. Well, we we appreciate you coming on. Always love having you. So, folks, remember to, to just strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. We'll see you next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding 
or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.